It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, is it a sin if I... Coming up in this episode... Life is complicated and packed with opportunities that society says are fun, exciting, and good. As Christians, this means we face daily choices that seem harmless and normal, but could in fact be sinful. How can we know if simple things like the way we dress or handle our money is God-honoring? Now, here's Rick and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Julie, our CQ contributor for several years now. Hi, Rick. I'm very glad to be here. Julie, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So technology, medicine, communication, and interdependence allow a previously unimaginable world of seemingly unlimited possibilities of societal advancement and personal fulfillment. Our communication is instantaneous, and our collective demands for entertainment and happiness have never been louder. While some of this has been a blessing, Satan, as this world's master of confusion, has blurred the lines of morality, resulting in our discovery of new methods for old ways to sin. Our focus as Christians is to please God and obey His righteous laws as outlined in the Bible. We already know God considers murder, lying, and pride as sinful, but What about all the contemporary situations the Bible does not directly address? Do we face gray areas now that never before existed? How can we know what God considers sinful? We receive questions from listeners who message us through the Christian Questions app, or they email us at inspiration at christianquestions.com. And many are behavior and lifestyle questions that fall into this gray area that you're talking about. So today, we're going to talk about wearing makeup and nail polish, cross-dressing and gambling. And in part two next week, we're going to be addressing several questions about sex, blood transfusions, and if we've got time, tattoos. We plan on making this a series, so please write us with your questions. But first, we need to set our foundation. And Rick, I've got four foundational questions that I want to ask you in the coming minutes. Okay, so a lot on the table right here and now, and also part two next week. So let's let's put this foundation in, in place before your first question. Here's the plainly stated scriptural basis that we want to build this episode upon. Julie, let's go to Romans 5.12. And this is from the Good News Translation. Sin came into the world through one man, and his sin brought death with it. As a result, death has spread to the whole human race because everyone has sinned. So we've got this blanket statement that sin enters, nobody's exempt, sin is everywhere. That's the basis. So our first foundational question, what is sin? Okay, simple question, straightforward question. And the Bible has some very basic definitions. We're going to focus in on New Testament definitions and understanding of the word for sin. So, Julie, what do we have from the New Testament? Well, the New Testament word means uh, to miss the mark. And there are several derivative words from that main one that are used. But that's basically it. Miss the mark, sin, trespass, offend. Okay, so anything less than the bullseye is missing the mark. That's what we're saying. Quick example of sin in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, King James Version. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin? In other words, how often shall he miss the mark against me? And I forgive him till seven times. Of course, we know Jesus answers. No, stop counting till 70 times seven. (laughs) All right. So that's sin. It's a very simple, simple uh, perspective. But now there's another thing that we want to talk about, and that's offense. When, when, when we create an offense, what does that word mean? And then we'll get into a scripture on it. According to the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, it means a side slip, lapse, or deviation, an unintentional error, or willful transgression. Now, how can we have an offense that is both unintentional and willful at the same time? Okay, it's not necessarily both at the same time, but it can mean both. Quick example, you have a car and you have car insurance and you decide, I don't like my car insurance company anymore. I'm not paying them and you lapse the policy. Now, maybe you should have got another policy in in its place, but hey, you lapsed it because you were mad. 
that that's what we're going to look at is an offense. Now you have your, your same car, your same car insurance, and then you forget to pay the premium and the policy lapses. Either case, one was unintentional, one was intentional, both result in a lapse, in an offense. So that's what this means. It could come either way, but it still qualifies as this deviation, this side slip. A good example of this is Romans 5.15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God, and by the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So not as the offense. And so any offense can be intentional or not, it's still off. It's still missing the mark. So that's kind of what we're looking at as a basis for sin. Here's what's happened. Sin has brought the human race out of favor with God and under the rule of Satan. We're told this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and that's a description of Satan, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And when we think of the sons of disobedience, what it's saying is it's all of those people who follow Satan, they may not even know it, but they are still classified as sons of disobedience. This will come into play a little bit later. All right, so we get it. We all sin. Let me ask my second foundational question. Are there degrees of sin? Like, is there a good, better, best action that we can take? If sin is to miss the mark, can we not get the bullseye, but still be on the board, so to speak? And let me give you an example. Uh, Let's say I had the opportunity to attend a Bible study, but I choose instead to go out to dinner with my friends. It's just more fun that night. So I miss the mark, right? Because the better choice would have been to study the Bible, but instead I did something else that in and of itself isn't sinful. So did I sin? So where am I with that? Well, a lot of it really does depend on motivation and so forth. You know, did you do it because you'd rather just not do do the other? You'd rather not go to the Bible study? Is it because uh, there was a, a singular opportunity? We have to be careful by saying black and white, because with sin, even though sin is missing the mark, and it's always, sin is always against God, we need to understand that sin is something we learn to grow out of over time. So maybe you do that and you say afterwards, you know, I don't think I should have done that. Lord, please forgive me. I've learned something. Yeah, it was a sin, but you learn from it. So it's a valuable experience to grow from. So let's make sure that when we look at sins, we're not saying, okay, sinned, I'm doomed. That's not what this is. We're learning to grow as Christians through these experiences. Okay, let me ask you uh, three of my four foundational questions. Is sin absolute, or is what is a sin for me not a sin for others? Meaning, are there things that I shouldn't do as a dedicated follower of Christ that others can do? Do we take that attitude of live and let live, or should we try to correct everyone around us? Okay. That's a, you've got a lot of good questions, and you're just getting started, aren't you? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's, folks, she's just getting started. Trust me, she's just getting warmed up here. So l- let's take a, a, a scripture as a, as a principle for this, because your ba- bottom line question is, uh, you know, is it live and let live? Do we try to correct everyone? Uh, what, mean, what does sin mean to me versus somebody else? Galatians right. chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are? immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Oh, this is quite a list, isn't it? Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so we've got this list, and on this list are some really big things, but also some subtle things. Uh, You know, enmity, strife, jealousy, dissension, factions, envying, these kinds of, these are more subtle things. So you've got all of these things listed in this big list of things that keep you out of the kingdom of God. So here's the thing. For people who are not following Christ, and, and look, tonight, today, in this particular episode, we're talking to you, you Christians who are saying, I am a footstep follower of Jesus. We can't go down these roads. For us, these things are all sin. For those others outside, we've got to allow them to be who they are because we can't hold them to our standards. They don't recognize our standards. They don't like our standards. They don't want our standards. And they were in the previous scripture called sons of disobedience. So you can't heal the other's sins because they are blinded by Satan. 
So when it says they won't inherit the kingdom of God, does that mean they've got no place in God's future kingdom? This is written to the called out Christians. And the kingdom of God in reference to called out Christians is the heavenly calling. We know that Jesus died for all men, no matter who they are, no matter when they live, no matter what sins they commit. They will have their resurrection on earth, but they are locked out of the heavenly call to Christianity. That's what this is about. That's a good question. Okay, so these finer points that we're going to be talking about, frankly, aren't going to matter to the average person or even the average Christian who might go to church on Sunday and doesn't really think about God the other six days of the week. This is more hardcore Christian. Uh, Okay. Very much more hardcore Christian. Go ahead. Okay, so I've got one last foundational question before we really dig into the good stuff. To what extent is sin dependent on our personal convictions? Remember, there's that famous debate in Acts 15 over whether or not it was wrong to eat meat offered to idols and how it violated the consciences of some. If it bothered your conscience, it was sinning. So do I decide what's labeled sin? Because that seems like sin is subjective based on what I say it is or it isn't. Okay, that's a really good question, because what that is saying is uh, some things can be sin for one person and not for another. So Right, right, right. Th- therefore, I must be the one to decide. Actually, no, you aren't the one to decide, and let me tell you why. Let's look at another scriptural principle on that very subject, Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does it for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and give thanks to God. This is talking about the eating is specifically talking about meat that had previously been offered to idols. And the point of this scripture is the Apostle Paul is saying unequivocally to as a high-level Christian principle— The eating of meat offered to idols is not sinful. However, there are many Christians who have a hard time with that because many of them came from a Jewish background and it was a heinous thing for them from a Jewish background. So the Apostle's saying it's not inherently sinful. But if you are in a situation where it, it feels sinful, then don't do it. Further, if you are in a situation where it doesn't feel sinful, don't do it in front of those who you would offend. So it's about not me deciding what's sinful or not, because this point was it's not sinful, but sometimes we have a problem anyway. So it's actually exactly the opposite, Julie. It's not saying, can I decide what's sinful or or what's not sinful? It's saying that this is not situational ethics. It's saying you have a high standard, and if I can manage that high standard, but somebody else can't. I need to be compassionate toward them. But it's always about a high standard set by Scripture, not what I decide is sinful or not. Big difference between those two things. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so let's go to our theme Scripture. We, we, you, you read it earlier. And in this theme Scripture, it seemingly is a very simple command to direct how we're to handle all things in life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, one more time. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, this tells me that we need to be living close in prayer and really on hyper alert to be God honoring because it's our only chance, it's our only opportunity to try to do the right thing is to have that connection, that close connection. And if we are not God honoring in our moments, are we really walking in Jesus' footsteps? So that becomes a very important principle for us to rely on as we go through the rest of these questions that you're going to open up that are much more difficult. This was foundational. We're going to get into a lot more difficult things coming up in the next segment. So, Julie, let's put this in order, labeling sin and living above it. The biblical definition of sin is missing the mark, which means that anything less than perfection is sin. We're therefore stuck in sinful lives, and this accentuates our need for Jesus. While sin does not have degrees of intensity and intention, I'm I'm sorry, it does have degrees. While sin does have degrees of intensity and intention, let's remember it is still, all of it is sin before God. Let us therefore always seek a path that leads as far away from sin as we can get. And Julie, that's the key, a path as far away from sin as we can get. So wrapping this up for for this moment here, sin is everywhere. 
We can't hide from it. Knowing what makes something sinful is a good start to keeping it away from us. And I know it's not supposed to be all about me, but is it a sin of pride if we just want to look our best? All right, you're getting into it. I can tell. (laughs) This is a really good question, especially in our world here and now. So much of what we experience on social media is about making an impression. As Christians, the impression we're supposed to make on others is one of Christ-likeness. So we need to figure out what the balance is between how we dress and discipleship. All right, so is it a sin if I, as a woman, wear artificial fingernails, nail polish, jewelry, or makeup? Okay, good question, good sub-questions. Before we get into the answer, let's put some biblical principles in place and then deal directly with those questions and and others that will naturally build off of that. So, Julie, we're going to introduce a biblical principle here that is going to help us explain what we believe to be a very biblical answer to those, those specific questions. So the principle is this. The biblical principle is godliness for every true Christian should always be our highest objective. So in anything and everything we do, including how we dress and how we look, our highest objective should be godliness. So with that principle in mind, let's look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 10, and this is the English Standard Version. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And providentially, just this weekend, we received a message from a listener who was confused as to whether or not this scripture meant she should not wear a pearl necklace and earrings her mom gave to her before she died. And we explained how there was nothing inherently sinful with pearls and gold. And in fact, both are used in scripture to represent beautiful pictures. So the context, I know that's your favorite word, is important here. Uh, The Apostle Paul's comments were directed at newly converted, wealthy Christian women of the first century. They and their husbands, think about it, they just came out of paganism. And many of these new Christian women were apparently constructing elaborate hair designs using wire frames, and they wore flashy clothes and expensive gold jewelry in an attempt to outdo the other women. So you have an inherent problem with that when you say in an attempt to outdo. There you go. That's all you need to say. Warning, warning, warning. Yeah, exactly. That's all we need to say because the principle that we talked about is godliness being our goal, our highest objective. So when we look at our how we dress, we should dress to honor God and not dress to impress ourselves or others. That's the scriptural principle. And I like how the Apostle Paul here is saying women are to adorn themselves with good works. Mm. And you're not distracting to others or themselves. That's really important because, you know, if you think of it, if I'm going to come to church in a hot pink jumpsuit with a $50,000 watch and big hair and loud makeup, this could make a subject to vanity or perhaps unspoken competition with other women, jealousy, backbiting, we're causing them to sin or inappropriate attention from men. We may be soliciting sexual interest or some sort of attention that is not appropriate where we are. You know, part of the Christian principle is, am I having people by looking at me, looking and seeing Jesus, or am I having them see something very, very different? Wearing expensive clothes, jewelry, fancy makeup can easily approach an appropriateness line and, and there are lots of appropriateness lines that we're going to be talking about today. And, and this could cause us or others to think, like you said, think or act sinfully. So even if we think, okay, it's not a sin for me, but if it's too much for the environment, then you got to say, wait, what am I doing? Am I drawing attention to Jesus or to me? Godliness, godliness, godliness with contentment is great gain. So let's put that one down for a moment. All right, this all sounds reasonable. Uh, Let me flip the conversation a bit. Is it a sin if you, as a man, wear artificial fingernails, nail polish, jewelry, or makeup? You know, this is becoming more common in our society. How should we we react? And that, of course, leads to the question of cross-dressing. You know, some churches say it's a sin if women wear pants, especially while in church. 
So I'm going to ask you, is it a sin if me as a woman, I wear pants? And is it a sin if you as a man dress like a woman? Oh, boy. I know you love that question. Yeah, I do. Just, <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. And, and again, before we answer with specificity, let's put the biblical principle on the table. And folks, it's really important with questions that are this big, and in our society, these are very valid questions, very valid questions. The biblical principle here that we want to look at is we are bound to follow God's order and not mix things that should stay separated. What does that mean? Well, let's biblically, Julie, let's look at two scriptures, one Old, one New Testament, Genesis 1.27 and Matthew 19.4. This is going to give us an order of things. The Genesis scripture, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. The Matthew scripture, and here are the words of Jesus. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Okay, so we've got the creation account and Jesus verifying that creation account. And there are many other New Testament writings that build on adhering to and celebrating that creation account, which simply says, God created male and female. He created a difference between the two. There was a distinction right from the start. And so that is a biblical principle of keeping things distinct when they're supposed to be. And the Bible is full. The New Testament is full of those distinctions. We'll touch on a few as we go. You know, there, there seems to be one scripture that appears to directly address this subject, this, this cross-dressing subject. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 22.5. And we're going to start by reading this from the New American Standard Bible, the 1995 edition, which is what we normally read from. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on women's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Sounds open shut case, right? It, it does. However, <laughs> the English words translating clothing here, there's, there's two words, one for man's clothing, the other for woman's clothing. They're actually two different Hebrew words. So Julie, let's go into the first one, then the second. All right, this is interesting because when I read a man's clothing, that Hebrew word means something prepared, like an apparatus, like an implement, utensil, dress, vessel, or artillery, bag, carriage. Um, it's, in other words, it's the gear, the tools or the weapons carried by a man. And that Hebrew word for women's clothing means a dress, especially a mantle, garment, raiment. So this was a garment, and apparently it especially was an outer garment, and the thought that it came from another Hebrew word that implies a cover that assumes the shape of the object beneath. Isn't that interesting? You can tell it's a woman or tell it's a man based on that shape. So the scripture is not necessarily talking about clothing versus clothing, but it's talking right. about the apparatus of a man versus the clothing of a woman and not switching those and see, that is an important, I think, an important principle uh, that, that we, we need to understand. This seems to be less about dress code and more about distinct gender roles between the sexes. Now, look, folks, I know in our world that when you start to talk about gender roles and all of that, everybody's going to get all, all up in arms. But this is scriptural. We're looking at it from a perspective of a dedicated footstep follower of Jesus. And so we're looking at the book and saying, what is the book telling us? Let's look at this scripture, uh, Deuteronomy 22.5, and read it from the King James Version, because there's an interesting difference. It says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, in other words, that men's gear we were talking about, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, in other words, robes made for a woman, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Yeah, it's interesting because there weren't a lot of fashion choices among the ancient Hebrews, but there obviously was some distinguishing between robes and tunics worn by women and those by men. And today we can see how Scottish kilts or sarongs in Asia or Africa worn by men aren't considered female clothing. Okay, so we have a very significant difference here. And Deuteronomy, again, it's not necessarily dress code, but it's showing the differences between the sexes. And that's an important situation. So the next question we want to look at is, okay, why would this be an abomination to, to cross-dress, 
to purposefully cross-dress. Why do we think we look at this and say, no, it's not appropriate? And there are several commentators that have several different potential answers. There's one that I, I absolutely favor. So this is going to give you a Rick opinion on which answer fits best. But this one explanation has to do with the why. Surrounding pagan nations worshipped very popular deities. And one was Astarte. God, as with all of the laws that he gave to his chosen people, was addressing how the Hebrews could stay pure and uncompromised by dishonoring the pagan practices around them. God did a lot of things to push his people away, saying, you don't get even close to that. As a matter of fact, here's what you do. When they do that, you do this because I am the Lord your God. There was widespread worship of the goddess Astarte, and that's a a Greek goddess, also known as Ashtaroth and Ishtar in Babylon. Asherah by the Philistines and Inanna by the Sumerians. She worshipped. She was worshipped by the Canaanites and the Egyptians. This 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 goddess was very popular and was the principal goddess of the Phoenicians. She was eventually equated with Aphrodite. So you've got this one goddess that has these these arms into all of these different cultures. So Julie, a little bit more about this goddess and and her 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 personality, if you will. Well, she's referred to the Bible in several places, including being worshipped, sadly, by King Solomon through his foreign wives. She was associated with fertility, sexuality, and war. And important to our discussion, she was said to be able to change a man into a woman and is sometimes represented with a beard. Now, Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible said, in part, the women were accustomed to appear in armor before her. So that would be that men's gear we talked about earlier and men in women's clothes. So the worship of her apparently included purposefully presenting as the opposite gender. So you can see how God Almighty being the one God saying, I created male and female. Here are the differences. You, my people, abide by these differences. And then you have, and it's so interesting to me how the pagan gods and goddesses throughout the ages just pick apart the clarity of Scripture. And this particular example shows us very definitely how it's going against the simplicity of male and female. There are differences. They complement one another and should be cherished one with another. So we look at this and say, you know, this cross-dressing thing, you've got to be really, really, really careful because Bible principle is sound. So labeling sin and living above it, Julie, what do we have? For Christians, the biblical principles of godliness being first in our lives and adhering to God's order of things rather than humanity's whims are a solid foundation for choosing how we physically appear to others. When presented with choices for clothing and any adornment we might desire, these principles should direct our decisions. So really, it's not a fashion choice. It's a choice of principle. If you are a Christian and you say, I am a footstep follower of Jesus, we therefore need to, here's an idea, follow his footsteps. Live according to principles that are godly and higher, even if everybody around us says, oh, no, no, we don't need that anymore. Really? You're not a footstep follower of Jesus. We can't make them do these things, but we can look at this and say, this is how I choose to live my life because I'm a follower of Christ. So it should be very clear to everyone that God is not arbitrary when it comes to what he wants his children to do and not to do. With sound godly principles in place, how do we deal with the practical part of the 21st century choice of dress and style? All right, so we're going further now. See, Julie is not yet satisfied. I got a lot more questions. (laughs) This is not a simple question to answer. We're faced with broad, sometimes daring, and frankly, sometimes vile approaches to presenting ourselves before the world around us. To get to the bottom line on these things, it's extremely important that we consider each and every question with our best personal application of the mind of Christ. And I want to focus on that point for a minute. Our best personal application of the mind of Christ. And to me, a simple, a simple analogy is if we are followers of Christ, he is our captain, you know, the, the author and finisher of our faith. He, he's the one we listen to. So when Jesus says, walk this way, my response is, yes, sir. 
It shouldn't be, yeah, but everybody else is walking that way, and that way doesn't look so bad, and how come I can't walk that way because it really is kind of close <laughs> to this way? It should be, yes, sir, because I honor the Lord Jesus who honors God the Father. So let's continue with this. Let's begin with the issues of dress and adornment and get into more specifics now from a female perspective. So Julie, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, we previously read the Apostle Paul's caution in 1 Timothy 2, and here we have kind of the bookend of that with the Apostle Peter giving us a similar message. They aren't forbidding women for all eternity from wearing jewelry or modest hairstyles. Instead, they're instructing women to concentrate on good works and a right attitude rather than trying to impress others with an immodest, inappropriate, or gaudy appearance. So let's wrap up that first question. Is it a sin if women use nail polish and wear jewelry and makeup? The answer is no. I believe it's a personal choice as long as it's appropriate to the setting and not distracting or used to show off. But overall, is our appearance to please God or to please ourselves in the world? In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that we're going to talk about further says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So if you agree with what I'm saying, we move on. Makeup and nail polish on men is more popular today as a form of self-expression. Is that sinful? I don't know how to answer that. Well, I know how to answer that. It, it's a, it's a, it, it is a disturbing trend. Uh, and, and I say disturbing, folks, because we've already established the differences. We've already established that there are, are basic biblical principles that say, and, and, and look, and, and when I say this, I know it's going to be misinterpreted, but I'm going to say it anyway. Men should be men and women should be women. And they're going to say, oh, what a bigot. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's see? huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But see, according to biblical principles, we are bound to follow them. That's really where we need to go. We'll, we'll expand this as we go further. Let's go to 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen to 15. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And so this is an interesting scripture. And in light of the context that you gave us earlier, you, you kind of get a sense of it's the way they're, they're wearing their hair. And look, there are some things that should just make sense to us. And when you look through the, the biblical cultures of the, the Jewish culture and Christian culture, you see a sensible, and again, people are going to react to this, but a sensible difference between men and women. It's just simple, basic things that a Christian should know. But let's go on. It, so does that mean it's a, it's a sin if women have short hair and men have long hair? I think that what the, the scripture, the principle of the scripture is saying is women should look like women and men should look like men. You know, that's really, the, you know, if, if you have a, a short haircut as a, as a female that is complementary to you as a female, I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I think we, look, we have to look at the, the cultural status in Corinth versus the principle that we can't lose today. So if the intent is to confuse gender, then that's where we start treading on that sinful area. Because it's a con it's, the intent is confusion. Yeah. The, Godly principles are never principles of confusion. So let's let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, one more time. All right, and again, this is King James Version. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now, again, your favorite word, context, Rick. We've got to acknowledge that this Deuteronomy chapter 22, the same chapter, also includes rules for not muzzling an ox, not mixing linen and wool, and instructions not to plant two kinds of seeds in your vineyard. So isn't this just a context cultural to Israel at the time rather than all cultures throughout all of time? You know, our, our present culture includes the acceptance of androgynous clothing in appearance. It does. It does. And, and we want to stress, this is the Old Testament law. There's no question about that. But this is part of the Old Testament ceremonial law. You know, when you talk about the, the mixing linen and wool, you've got, you've got a lot of things going on there that are, are beyond the moral law that we are always to adhere to. So while this is very much the ceremonial law, 
the New Testament, and let's not forget, the New Testament shows significant male and female differences. So you can say, well, yeah, I want to write off part of that scripture because of maybe a ceremonial aspect. Okay, that's fine if you want to do that, but you're not going to get anywhere. Okay, what you're trying to do is push the envelope. You're trying to say, well, it shouldn't be that way. Well, in the New Testament, there are many, many, many verses that talk about the role of men and the role of women and how they are different and how they are complementary and how they build one another up if understood appropriately. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why we really need to look at the Bible in, in, a, in, a, in a topical way, um, because to be clear, this isn't going to apply, if you just pluck out this one scripture, it's not going to apply to a Christian today any more than saying, oh, if you wear a shirt made from both linen and wool, and you eat shrimp, you're sinning. You know, that's not, that's not what we're saying. Right. But <laughs> I've got a question. Is really? What we, <laughs> I know. Is, but is what we wear that important if God looks at our heart? And I think of 1 Samuel 16, 7, where it says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And if it was that important to God what we wear, you would think, because the early church was in the middle of all that paganism, that do not wear men's clothes and do not wear blah, blah, blah. It would be all over the New Testament. Well, first of all, the, the, I don't think the issue existed certainly like it does today. But secondly, let's understand that the principles of the New Testament, the teaching in the New Testament, you already read it in First Peter, the teachings in the New Testament are really simple. What you wear is the outward manifestation of who you are as a Christian in relation to your reverence for God. So let's think about that as, you know, the man-woman cross-dressing thing. Honestly, Julie, the way we present ourselves should be to show our reverence for God, not reverence for a social construct, not reverence for woke behavior, but reverence for God Almighty. And when we look at Scripture, we have zero when it comes to looking at such a question of cross-dressing. There is zero ability to go down that road. It's a reverential question that needs a reverential answer. Okay, let's, uh, what about uh, Romans 1? Let's take a look at Romans 1, 18, 19, 22, and 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So the Romans 1 scriptures are really, really important because you asked before, how come the, the idea of dress isn't all over the New Testament? What is all over the New Testament are the principles of understanding who God Almighty is. And Romans 1, this is about God's anger toward those who, in the world, who have ignored the absolute recognition of the fact that there is a creator. Folks, honestly and truly, look around at the world and the miracle of creation and the miracle of DNA and how do you have an ecosystem that's natural within the earth and how one thing supports the other. It could not possibly have happened by chance. And we look at that, but we say we make up all of these other excuses to go down all these other roads. This principle applies with our recognition of men and women as well. And because we have in our society essentially tried to de deconstruct the differences, we have opened up a whole new area of, of, of a whole new way to, to, to sin because <laughs> we're, we're disregarding what God put in place. So these Roman scriptures help us to see that the New Testament principles are sound in, in, in upholding that which is ancient and reverent. So if I'm um, speaking to a Christian, is a Christian who is cross-dressing, is that a choice of rebellion against God? Last month, famous movie star Brad Pitt made news because he wore a skirt at a public event. Dressing like the opposite sex has been used throughout history for disguise and comfort and comedy and self-expression. So what about a choice of rebellion against God? Because these are serious claims. Yeah, yeah, and you're talking from a perspective of a Christian. Let's go back to Romans 1. Uh, Julie, let's read verse 25. 
for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature. Oh, I see what you're going with this creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And the principle is sound and it's loud and it's clear. Many who participate now, you know, talk about Brad Pitt. He doesn't claim to be a a footstep follower of Jesus. Okay. So he can do whatever he wants to do in his own little world. He doesn't claim to be who we're talking to, but so, so many that participate in re- rebellious actions toward God may do so with a measure of ignorance. They don't see it as rebellion against God. They see it as, hey, this is culture. This is something big and wonderful. It's not. <laughs> While this should help us to be compassionate, it doesn't remove the fact that their actions comply with Satan, the father of lies. So it is an act of rebellion, even if those who are rebelling don't know it, because God Almighty ultimately rules, and it's his judgment that we will, they will ultimately come before So that's how we put all of this in place. So let's put another biblical principle on the table here. The Bible as a whole gives us a clear dividing lines between those who follow God and those who follow false gods. It's our responsibility to only choose following God in all aspects of life. Exodus 20, verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Folks, we can have all kinds of gods even if we don't think we believe in God. We can have the God of fashion, the God of popularity, the God of inclusion, the God of daring. It's all about walking away from God Almighty. And as Christians, we can't do that. We have to stay above the fray in that area. Okay, so if someone who cross-dresses came into your church congregation, Rick, how would you fulfill Jesus' commandment to love one another? You just don't let me off the hook, do you? <laughs> this this is a hard question, but I think here, Julie, let me tell you what what I would want to do. This is my what what I think would be the most appropriate thing to do. I'd ask them who they are, how they heard of us, why they're here. We'd have our study. Afterwards, I'd say, Hey, come on, come here. I want to I want to sit and talk with you, get to know you a little bit, and I would listen to their why about how they dress and who they believe they are. I would listen first, and then I would explain from a Christian perspective, because you're attending a Christian meeting, the roles of men and women as defined in the New Testament. I would address the idea of Christian liberty with them and how dressing in the way they are dressed is a dramatic misapplication of that liberty. Because we so often feel like, well, the Bible says that, you know, you can kind of do whatever you want and, 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 and sort of label it yourself. As a matter of fact, let's look at Romans 14, verses 13 and 14, and then I'll, I'll tie this one up. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, But to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. So that person could be sitting there and saying, well, Brother Rick, here's this scripture that says, uh, I'm I'm telling you, you're putting an obstacle of stumbling before me because I don't believe this is unclean. You should look at this and say, I'm going to accept what what, what you're doing. It's a misapplication of scripture because the unclean that's being spoken of in this scripture, be clear, be contextual, is about eating meat offered to idols. It's not about deciding you want to dress differently. It's not about purposefully, because you want to express yourself, making a statement. As Christians, folks, the expression of ourself should be way in the background. We should be expressing Jesus Christ first in what we say, what we do, what we think, and in how we dress. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to 32. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Do all to the glory of God. I mean, that is the core. And you mentioned that right in the, in the first segment. Regarding the way we present ourselves, ask ourselves, what's our motivation? What's our deep personal motivation? I mean, what do I, am I really motivated to do by dressing in this way? Yeah, and I think here's here's what's this where the sin comes in is our motivation. So are we dressing or accessorizing in a certain way in order to get attention? And if so, are we taking attention away from God and Jesus? Are we doing this to rebel against what's expected of us by our parents or friends or even society? And, and you know, God knows. Jesus knows. So you can say, I'm not doing it, but you really are. They know. So, you know, we can stop with the pretense. Look, 
is it a preference or is it a compulsion that we can't seem to stop? Because it could be even deeper than, oh, this is what I want. You know, when we look at this thing, a fetish, for instance, and don't want to talk about it, but a fetish receives sexual stimulation. Maybe we're stuck there and maybe we need professional help as a result. Are, are we valuing clothing or things more than our relationship with and the following of Jesus, of being that footstep follower? I, Perhaps we're suffering from gender dysphoria, which is a much, much, much bigger issue. So, Julie, the whole principle here is keep things in the order that the scriptures put them in and find the value, see the reverence, and follow that. So, labeling sin and living above it. As Christians, we simply don't have the liberty to do what everyone else does. And someone once says, said, and I love this quote, when truth is blurred by lies and misinformation, perception becomes reality and all is lost. God created humans to be male and female, and our Christian responsibility is to honorably uphold the sanctity of what God created. Sanctity of what he created and the purposes that he created it for. We need to keep that in absolute order. So, how we present ourselves as Christians is not about making a fashion statement. Rather, it's about making a discipleship statement. And how we choose to look is one thing, but are there specific guidelines for Christians when it comes to any kind of gambling? Different subject. The depth of the depth, I'm sorry, the depth of tragedy that an issue like gambling can cause is scary. But before we panic, we first need to define what we're referring to when we talk about gambling. For Christians, some situations in which we subject our money to a measure of risk can be very appropriate. However, there are a wide variety of other circumstances that simply are better left alone. Is it a sin if I gamble in any way? Now, this includes buying raffle tickets for my local school or charity. Now, I, I personally bought raffle tickets for a cause that I would normally donate a sum to, such as animal welfare. I've never won, but I would have given that sum of money anyway. What about playing in a state lottery or scratch-off tickets that are popular in the United States? What about playing in-person slot machines? Again, here in the United States, they're becoming common in places like gas stations and restaurants. Is it a sin if I physically go to a casino to gamble? And what about engaging in online betting? And here in the United States alone, it's predicted to be an $8 billion industry by the year 2025. So we can look at these things, and I know Christians who make a deal with God. God, if you let me win, I will give it to a lot of good causes. And they might even quote Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord from your wealth and from all the first of your produce. Yeah, you're quoting a scripture, but you're misquoting the scripture because you're saying, God, let me win. <laughs> Proverbs yeah, let is me about, win. Yeah, but, win, win. Yeah, but God Proverbs, wins, I win. Proverbs is all about what you have, what you have produced, not what you lucked up to. So this idea <laughs> of God, let's make a deal, is an entirely, bottom line, is an entirely inappropriate Christian approach because it is not honoring God. It's honoring me. God, I want so I can give. It's not, I will give what I have. Remember the widow's might? You know, Jesus saw this, this widow put this little tiny bit into the treasury, and, he, and, and Jesus said she gave her all, and her, her gift was more valuable? Folks, why don't we think in those terms rather than in these terms? So, let's look at gambling from a scriptural perspective. Does the Bible ever encourage gambling? Well, you know, there, there's an account, and we won't get into depth, but Judges chapter 14, 12, and 13, Samson is talking to these Philistines, and he gives them a riddle and says, if you can solve this riddle in seven days, I'll give you tons of clothing. And, you know, some people look at that and say, well, see, he, he was encouraging gambling. That wasn't gambling. What that was, it was, a, it was a, a game of wits. I've got a riddle. I don't think you can figure it out. I'm willing to give you something if you can. That's a whole different perspective than gambling. In Mark 15, 24, after Jesus is, is crucified, he's hanging on the cross, and the soldiers want to decide who gets his garment. Now, think, think about this. You know, and they cast lots, and people say, well, was that gambling? Well, first of all, think about this. The man is dying on the cross in torture and pain and suffering. And what are they doing? They're sitting there arguing over his clothing. They, oh, how sad. It is. They, they cast lots because they were on equal footing and they, they couldn't decide. So they said, okay, well, 
basically the guy with the shortest straw gets the clothing. It's not gambling. That's, that's an agreement that these individuals are entering into. So, you know, we don't have the Bible encouraging, quote, gambling, unquote, that anywhere that we, we can see at all. Yeah. So what if I want to get together with my friends and I play a card game for money? or very popular to bet on sports. Since the Bible doesn't specifically prohibit gambling, is it the particular game that's bad? Like board games are okay, but card games and horse races aren't? Or is it the betting that's bad? Or is the gambling in excess and potential addiction that's bad? What's uh, the sin? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> a lot of what you said. Let's put a scripture on the table first and then look at it. First Corinthians six nineteen to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And I would say that we take that the principle of that scripture. It's not just glorify God in your body, but in your actions that you do with your body. Do we want to, as dedicated footstep followers, as dedicated disciples of Jesus, do we want to engage in any activity that has such dark and addictive potentials. I mean, think about it. You can say, well, it's something simple, but it's something that also brings people to their ruin. And with all of the casinos that you have and with all of the online betting that you have, inevitably you have all these ads for, if gambling is a problem, call 1-800-DON'T-GAMBLE, something like that. You know. So right. what you have is you're engaging in an activity that is known to bring people down. Do we want to engage in that even on a low level? See, to me... It's, it's just not the right way to go about our Christian life. So is it a sin if I gamble as a form of entertainment and in moderation? <laughs> Julie doesn't quit. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know where to draw the lines. Okay, and you know what? And that's a really important point. Where do we draw the lines? Let's go to another scripture, 1 Corinthians 10.23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So you're asking, what about if it's in moderation? Is that a sin? Well, think about this. The moderation that we're engaging in, it requires a physical investment. It requires an emotional investment. And it also brings a spiritual cost. So here's the thing. We've got this physical investment of money and time, this emotional investment of the excitement. Is it worth the cost spiritually. And you got to look at that. And I will tell you that the weight of the spiritual cost is much greater than the physical investment and the emotional investment. So we need to look at that and say, am I really just merely finding some, 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 some casual entertainment or am I going down a road that is costing me spiritually? Folks, be honest on this because we like to rationalize and a true disciple of Jesus does not engage in that kind of thing. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what if, uh, because many charities and churches, they receive funding from lotteries. That's good, right? You know, the money raised helps support important causes. And what about that raffle ticket that I bought to help the animals, to help raise money? Did I sin? Okay. So so we'll put a, we'll put a scripture on the table in a second. But, you know, the idea of raising money for a worthy cause, that's a very different thing in my mind, okay? It's a very okay. different sure. thing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, good. Well, because there are things that are worthy of our dollars and cents because they're, they're, they're for good reasons. So let's put a scripture on the table and talk about this. First Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each one, who has, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so when you look at that, we've re each has received a gift. And, and, and the idea is serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There are good causes that, you know, you come across them and you say, this is something that I would like to give a few dollars to. And I really don't have any, any trouble with that whatsoever. To, you know, and, and Julia, I know you're passionate, passionate about animal abuse and things of that nature. 
And and I absolutely passionate against animal abuse. Yeah, right. Just so that you, know, you say that just, correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But so so when we come across causes that are worthy, sure. If it's money that you would give to a cause anyway, and I've done that. I've you know where there's a raffle for you know feeding homeless people or something. I, I bought a ticket and I say, well, I'll keep the ticket. I don't care about the prize. Just take the money and and take care of business, because to me. We do want to have a sense, have our fingers in upholding the world around us in good ways. Now, look, that's not the focus of a Christian, because the focus of a Christian is the new world and being faithful to be able to serve that. But let's not forget the world that's around us and be careful with those kinds of things. It's not about what I can win. It's about what I can give. That's really what this part, I think, boils down to. So what's wrong with taking a small risk to win a big prize? There was a... uh several billion dollar uh, lottery in my state recently and you know it's cost so much a ticket what's wrong with that okay Let's one shot deal put another scripture on the table first corinthians uh, chapter 4 verses 1 to 2 let a man regard us in this manner as servants of christ and stewards of the mysteries of god in this case moreover it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy so the question I, the initial question I have is trying to win a big prize, taking a small risk, $5, $10, 20 whatever you consider a small risk. Am I being a servant of Christ and a steward of what is God's? Because my life, as a dedicated Christian, Julie, I gave my life to God through Christ. And the contract is, I will do whatever you say, and all of my life will be focused on serving you and you alone. So am I taking that stewardship seriously by acting in that way? I can win this big prize. I can hit it big. question I have to ask myself is, do I want to be that guy? Why am I seeking a big prize? Don't I already have treasure in heaven? Isn't that the prize that I'm supposed oh. to be focused on? Isn't that the, the direction that a That's true good. Christian is supposed to be thinking about? So let's think about the real reasons, the excitement, sure. But you know what? Is it serving God? That's really the bottom line. I had to smile because I accidentally ran into Proverbs 13, 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. There you go. Gathers <laughs> little by little. Right. And speaking of which, why isn't playing the stock market gambling? Okay. Play. <laughs> and, and you know what? We shouldn't even use the word playing the stock market because when you invest in the stock market, if you are doing it with a little bit of education, what you're doing is you're investing money into ownership in one or several companies. And the idea of the ownership is to reap the benefits of that company's work and, and, and value to, to the economy. So no, that is not... A, a that is not a gambling situation. If you are just throwing money at, at random stocks, yeah, you're not doing any homework, you're not doing any thinking, that's not mature. But investing in the stock market generally is a, is a thought-out process by which money can actually make money over time. So no, I don't see that as gambling at all, but it needs to be put in its appropriate place. So biblical principle, our final biblical principle. As Christians, we need to accept that all we have, all we are, all we accomplish, and all we waste are reflections of our diligence in the stewardship with which we are entrusted. So wrapping up this gambling conversation, all we have, all we are, all we accomplish, and all we waste reflect our stewardship. And when we stand before God, what is he going to see? When we put the books in front of him, how do they balance, or how are they out of balance with our maturity in Christ? Be really, really, really diligent when it comes to things like gambling. So let, let, let's sum this up, Julie. Well, if we were to look at some arguments for or pro-gambling, I would say gambling is a form of entertainment. Um, people would say it's a social activity that brings us closer to others. It, the proceeds might fund worthy charities. But I can quickly see the negative where it can become easily addictive. And professional gaming, like casinos and online gaming, it's designed psychologically to help you lose your money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're really, really good at that. And, and, and really, we, we want to take a look at our lives and say, look, we need to redeem the time. That's a scriptural concept. Even if we don't lose money, 
we most definitely lose time and emotional energy that could be best invested in doing things more closely aligned to the Lord's work. Think about your job in life. It is to follow Jesus. So, you know, the desire for more ends up becoming all-consuming so easily, and it leads to sinful behaviors, because just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, and ultimately, what this ends up being is a personal decision with potentially dire results. Riches are not to be pursued. Remember, treasure in heaven. Our relationship with God through Christ is our most important path. That's where we need to be focused on, period, end of statement. Labeling sin and living above it, let's begin to wrap this up. As Christians, let us observe that the whole environment of gambling doesn't lend itself to sanctified behavior. To contribute to worthy causes is one thing, but to engage in something that easily spurs on greed and obsession is not likely a good spiritual choice for a true disciple of Christ. And Rick, I was going to ask you another question, but let's save it for part two. The question is, is it okay to sin if we're saved by grace? Okay. Is it okay to sin if saved by grace? And you got to be careful with that question. So, so we'll leave it at that. Let, let's wrap up with one scripture, Julie. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. And it's never okay to sin. When we see we've fallen short or perceive that we might be in one of these gray areas, we ask for guidance and forgiveness through prayer. And Hebrews 4.16 comes to mind. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So, folks, when we look at some of these questions, you know, there's a lot that we've talked about today, a lot of very specific things, and the principles are always the same. What is godliness? How am I reflecting godliness in everything that I'm saying, doing, thinking, wearing, and participating in? And what does it mean if I'm always looking for, is it sin, is it sin, is it sin, is it sin? Think about what's important, following Jesus. Really, think about it. Folks, listen, we listen. We love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, Is It a Sin If I... Part 2. Talk to you next week.